Welcome to the Startup Help Desk, your source for answers to questions about building businesses, growing businesses, and the meaning of life. Your founders and CEOs here on our panel have been working for decades to build businesses, and we've made every possible mistake in the book, so we're here to save you that hassle by sharing our experience with you. Every question you hear on today's episode was submitted by you or people just like you on our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com or on Twitter, thestartuphd. I'm Sean Burns. I've been a founder for 20 years, starting companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I have coached hundreds of founders on their journeys. And today I write a newsletter called The Breaking Point. And I'm happy to be here with Nick and Ash answering your questions today. Let's do it. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I am co-founder and CEO of a company called Rev. We build tools that help people acquire innovation skills and start companies. This is my second startup. I've had a chance to support several hundred startup founders on their innovation journey. And I've also had a chance to learn tons from Sean and Ash along the way. And so I love being here. So excited to jump in. Hi, everyone. My name is Ash Rust. I'm a pre-seed B2B investor based in San Francisco. I'm here, so at least 30% of the answers are vaguely correct. I invest in the US, UK, and Canada through my fund, Sterling Road, but I've also worked at other funds like Trinity Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence and Bullpen Capital as an advisor. Before I was a VC, I was an entrepreneur. So I worked at a company called Clout as an early employee, and then also was the co-founder and CEO of a company called SendHub. I've mentored more than a thousand startups over the years, and that's how I spend most of my time these days. And in a future episode, we're actually going to have Ash recite the names of all thousand companies he's ever worked with, and he can do it from memory. It's amazing. It's a great party trick. You should see it sometime. That's right. Alphabetical from A to Z and then back. (laughs) He's not just flagrant lies. (laughs) You know, you're lucky that we're not, we don't pay each other for the presence of this because then these kinds of things would just be harassment in the workplace. So as a quick reminder, if you have questions, submit them on our website, thestartuphelpdesk.com or on Twitter, thestartuphd. Let's get started, guys. Our first question, which is actually a really good one. How do you build motivation behind your company vision? And this question is especially noticeable now that everybody's not in the same office. You can't rally the troops in a meeting or do exciting offsites. Some people are remote in a hybrid work environment. So in the new world where your company might be remote or it might be hybrid, how do you build motivation behind your company vision? Nick, what do you think? Get us started. This is so much fun. I'll give two frameworks that I use and then I'll turn it to Ash. And so one is capture proof everywhere you can. And so proof is your engine for acquiring new customers. It's your ability. It drives your ability to hire and it is key for your ability to motivate your team. And so every time you earn a new customer, you get a great testimonial from an existing customer or you have customers asking for more. This is proof. Be an absolute machine when it comes to documenting your proof and then distribute it across the company. Every time you get a chance to celebrate the hard work that people are doing, especially if it's coming from some objective metric or from somebody else, i.e. a customer, share it. And the second thing is find fun ways to start building your identity and culture. And one thing I've done is I record a weekly status update video. This is so much fun and it's a bit of a running joke at this point because the goal is to record a 60-second video that has me giving highlights from this past week and then discussing what's next. The funny part, of course, is that 
recording a 60 second video is quite challenging. So it always turns into a much longer video, but we have so much fun. It builds this identity around us celebrating what we're working towards and ultimately galvanizes us towards our next big milestone. With that though, Ash, what's your take? Well, first of all, I think hybrid company is kind of a misnomer. I mean, that's everybody nowadays, right? Like there's nobody that isn't really in that position. So, you know, I guess it's this is the problem that every single company faces uh, rather than just like quote unquote hybrid companies or people that have a remote workforce because that's everybody. Um, all right. So how do you actually solve this problem of getting people to buy in to your vision? Well, I don't know if I 100% agree with Nick here. My honest feedback is that if you're sharing every piece of good news that comes out, you may well be sharing too many metrics. And I think that you actually need to be focused on one or two KPIs and really getting everybody rallied around the importance of those. So um, first and foremost, you have to be pitching all the time. Sales, recruiting, fundraising, you've got to be pitching all the time and also to your employees in the all hands meeting. You're selling the vision to them all the time. As you do that all the time, that's going to make your pitch a lot better. Uh, And also, if you're doing that in the public settings, then your public speaking gets better. You get more inspirational in a lot of those smaller settings as well. I do agree with Nick that you should be sharing good news. And as Sean said, I think in a newsletter recently, you want to build the well of goodwill. So sharing good news, giving credit, being transparent about things definitely helps people buy into your wider vision um, and then involve people in the company principles. So oftentimes, you know, you maybe have set the company vision or the mission, but it's not that clear. And so the opportunity to do things like workshops to clarify that or really bring everybody together around what that vision might mean, make sure you do those kinds of things. Because when people are involved in those discussions, they're much more likely to be excited about them and want to make them come to fruition. I have a serious question for you guys. Let's say you took the typical early stage company, the kind of people who would listen to the podcast here, and you you picked an employee at random, not the CEO or a founder, just a random employee, and you asked them to tell you what the vision of the company is. How often would that person be able to tell you what the vision is? What is your guess? Zero percent of the time. Ooh, you know, I, I would like to... I think I would like to adjust that a little bit by venturing around the size of the company. I think if you are at this four or five person team, I think the likelihood of them being able to share that vision will be quite strong. I think as you transition from there, 10, 15, that's where you start working your way perhaps closer to Ash's prediction. Well, so, and I agree with you, by the way, but doesn't that mean, doesn't that tell us then the most important thing you can do to build momentum on the vision is constantly reinforce what the vision is for everybody and remind them of it. Like it seems like a lot of companies struggle with getting people excited about the vision because they just forget to remind everybody. It's so self-evident to you as a founder, what it is that if you just don't bring it up, you don't remind everybody where that should be one of the most common things you do. Right. That's what I was just saying. Pitch. (laughs) You can even see it in my notes. Uh, the, uh, credit. You were supposed, aren't you the one who's supposed to be answering? The, I mean, the question asking, we'll, rolling on in here, taking the credit. Sean Burns, everybody. We'll, we'll view the episode That's transcript exactly and we'll see. Exactly. We'll, we'll have to look <laughs> at the transcript on that one. Transcript. Right. That's right. We, we can't confirm that just Very yet. Good. Well, so but, all of, everybody out there, just remember your team is probably, if they can't even recite your, your vision, they're not going to be super behind it. So absolutely. Listen to, listen to Ash. 33, 33% of the time our answers are correct. We just want to know which, 
which one third of the time they are. That's too good. <laughs> yeah, repeat it all the time in your in your all hands meetings. Start with that, and then go into your KPIs. That's the usual mechanism I would suggest for making. I sure think there's also I think there's a key piece here as well, where ultimately, as one of the founders, each week, maybe it's weekly, every every other week, or it's monthly. Try to write what it is that you do in one sentence, and just see if it changes from week to week or every other week. In doing so, it'll make sure that you consistently deliver that message over and over again. And if there are notable changes and they're meaningful changes that actually make sense, it's your responsibility to then make sure that they manifest across the team too. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, since Ash is carrying the podcast, Ash, why don't you pick the next question off the question key for today? Perfect. Yeah. My shoulders are aching and that's for sure. All right. From Carrie and you two. So, um, the next question on the founder submissions is, what is the difference between customer development and sales? What's the difference between customer development and sales? I, I love, Nick, I'm going to jump in and answer this first because I love this question. And the reason I love this question is I meet so many founders that get started, they build a product and they immediately feel like I'm going to start selling it. Like I need to start selling it and I'm going to start doing all the things I've read about in books about selling and funnels and the reality is that there's two stages of your company in the early days. There's customer development where you're trying to figure out what you are going to sell and then sales when you figure it out and you need to sell it. So customer development happens before you found product market fit where your goal is learning. So you're going to interview potential customers. You're going to do some potential customer engagements, maybe a little bit of consulting, anything you do to learn about what you need to sell. Selling is what happens after you have that clear signal and you know what you're going to sell. So in customer development, people might be paying you for your product. We just, that's that's great. That's fine. That's fantastic. But in general, you're not really selling until you're looking to optimize and improve something that's working, right? In customer development, every sale might be different. You're learning about which customers to target, how much to charge them, how to sell them, all those sorts of fun things. Sales is when you figure that out and you want to get better and better at it so you can accelerate and grow. And those are two different stages. You can't really hire salespeople until you're in the second category because often salespeople, they can't do customer development. You need to be a founder, a CEO. You need to be open to learning. You need to iterate. You need to stay small and agile until you hit that inflection point. That inflection point typically, from in my opinion, is once you've sold the same product to the same people, three or four, or same kind of customer three or four times, then you're starting to transition to sales because you've found out a model that seems to work. You don't have everything figured out, but you know you have enough signal that it looks like it'll be consistent. Now, here's the key. It, the most common cause of, of company death pre-product market fit is confusing these two things. You try to sell too early and you think your, your goal is to optimize sales and improve your whatever it is instead of learning from the market. So don't confuse the two. Customer development is what you're doing until you figure out what business you're in. Selling is what you do. Sales are what happened after you figure out what business you're in, after you found product market fit. But, you know, your mileage may vary. Nick, how does your mileage go? Oh, hang on. I want to just make sure we highlight here that there's just no way out, founders. You're going to have to do sales. That's one of the most important things Sean said there. No hiding. The first five or 10 sales are all you. And I would just like to point out, Ash has finally acknowledged something I said was correct, which is a seminal moment in the history of this podcast. Yeah, we're wearing white after Labor Day here. Everything's changing. You know, the good news is that Sean is definitely bringing our uh, answer accuracy up in a big way on that one. The one thing I wanted to note about that was Sean mentioned the 
common causes of startup death. And so, of course, confusing sales and customer discovery is a huge piece. And the other piece, which Ash highlighted here, was actually not even entering the customer discovery and sales conversation and just spending all of your time building. And so, of course, uh, consider that as one of the uh, core steps. Make sure you enter this customer discovery sequence in order to start actually growing and building something uh, that matters to your customers. With that, I like to think about customer discovery as being a compass and then sales as being the engine or the fuel for your startup ship. And so thinking about customer discovery, the insights you're trying to understand are the following. You want to know who your customers are. You want to know what specific problem they need solved. You want to be able to learn how to solve it and what channels you can use to reach and to sell to them. So again, imagine the answers to those questions being the tool that drives where your compass should be pointing. Once you've got some confidence and some real proof that you're pointing in the right direction, now it's time to add your engine and add some fuel. And so at that point, you can add more fuel to the fire by ramping up your sales efforts. The last call out that I'll make, and then I'll turn it back to Sean and Ash for some final details here, is that it's so important to be in a consistent state of customer discovery. And so you don't do customer discovery on day one of your startup journey, complete it, and then say, phew, done with that. It is a consistent effort that needs to be part of your DNA as a startup. And so always look to customer discovery as being that framework for helping you understand and generate new insights from your users and how to solve their problems. Yeah, so that's what I'm kind of worried about here. I'm concerned that people could take what you're saying as there's two separate phases, design partner phase and then sales phase. And I'm not 100% sure I agree with that. I think you always need to be in that kind of like customer slash advisor role with a lot of your clients, especially if they're in the, if you're on the more B2B side, uh, especially if you're moving up market to enterprise. I don't love the idea of trying to sort of put the design partner element or the customer advisory board element in a box and say, okay, we're done with that after 10 sales or 15 sales or something like that. Oh, I, I would actually take a step further, Ash. I think you can move back and forth. Like, let's say you start selling and then something in your market changes. Um, you can go back to customer development because all of the assumptions that you were going to build the sales engine on could could have changed. That happened with the lockdowns during the pandemic, right? Companies that thought they had a model that was working had to go rediscover, re-enter the customer development phase, relearn. So you're absolutely right. It's not a binary thing. You don't achieve sales and then you take off. It goes back and forth and learning is always part of the journey. Uh, but I would like to, the most important thing I took away from what you said, Nick, when you talked about your, your startup ship. And this is important, Ash, we need to commit to this. The day when you finally decide you're going to retire onto your yacht, you have to name your yacht Always Be Shipping. Yes. It never occurred to me before now that the startup ship and shipping are so similar. So you have to name your yacht Always Be Shipping. And we need that commitment from you right now. That is so, so good. You, That's an absolute I get, must. I get so seasick that when we go on vacation with like other couples and stuff, we don't go on any of the boat parties or anything. You'll be looking oh, from uh, from beachside. Then you can wave from beachside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'll be. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have someone waving next to me because I'm going to be napping the whole time. Oh, that's right. You're not going to have a tear in your eye as you look on and and wave and support the founder that that's always shipping. <laughs> sure. 
There you go. Don't get the yacht for yourself then, Ash. Get it for Nick and I. We will ride on it for you and tell you how it is. It's a perfect there situation. There it is. Everybody wins. Everybody yeah. wins. There's Everybody nobody wins. listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. We have time for one more question. Nick, take us away. What's the last question that we have time for today? Let's do it. How do you know when it's time to move from generalists into roles for specialists? What do you do with great generalists? So I'll start on this one. Yeah, I think that if, first of all, you know, you know when it's time to move these uh, generalists uh, out of roles that are now requiring specialists, usually because they start missing goals. There'll be uh, steadily more and more goals missed. Those goals will get more and more important. You'll probably have less warning about those goals. And when you're discussing achieving new goals with those generalists, they'll probably have less and less good ideas about how to solve them. You might also encounter team friction in those kinds of situations. And then I think one of the most noticeable things is usually those generalists are starting to look elsewhere themselves. They might be drawing their attention to other goals that you're saying, hey, those aren't key goals, but they're saying, oh no, it's super valuable for the company. Let me explain why. That's the kind of area where it's probably time to move them off running uh, that particular project and over to something else. Now, where do you put great generalists as you scale? Well, I usually suggest on the fires, the big problems that the company is facing. Usually, as you scale 5 to 10 people, 10 to 25, 25 to 50, you're going to see various different things break around the company. It might be uh, just stability. It might be shipping features. It might be hiring. It might be HR. It might be internal tools. Whatever those kinds of things are that are coming up, Put your key generalists on that where they have to maybe build a team, build consensus. That kind of opportunity is usually something they're going to relish. And their ability to be uh, adaptable, to be flexible is really going to come into play there. And then the last thing, and this is one of the most important things that a lot of managers really don't do, especially in tech, because we think we have all the answers, is you've got to be uh, willing to ask people what they want to do. So if you've got a generalist who, you know, moved mountains for you when there was uh, your first 10 employees or your first million in revenue and now they're really struggling, don't be afraid of asking them what do they want to work on? What would make them most excited? And, you know, give them the opportunity to show you. Yeah, I, this is a rare circumstance. I don't have any disagreeing with what Ash said. I, I The only thing I can add is it's similar to what we talked about with moving from customer development to sales. It is very common that companies develop internal dysfunction operational issues when they move from generalist to specialist too early. So a common case, and, and Ash highlighted this before, like as a founder, you need to sell. A lot of times people who don't like selling, the first thing they want to do is hire a salesperson because that salesperson can sell and I hate selling. And so this is great, but a salesperson is a specialist. And typically salespeople specialize in specific kinds of sales, specific kinds of customers. So if you haven't figured out a sales playbook and you haven't really figured out your sales motion, you try to bring a salesperson on board, it's very hard for them to be successful. Like you really don't want to hand off from a generalist to a specialist until you have at least not enough knowledge about what they will need to do to know who to hire and enough of a playbook they can pick it up and start to run with it. They might be able to take a playbook that's kind of vague and refine it and improve it. And that's what a specialist does well but you have to get it far enough along. And that isn't just true of sales, it's true of recruiting and customer success across the board, even, even engineering, right? You're not going to oh, hire a database I don't know specialist. if I agree. I was about to push back there. I think with engineering, oh. 
by and large, that might be the one exception here where a specialist, especially if you're trying to build some kind of particular technology, maybe it's based on the stock market or it's a space rocket or it's biotech, having engineering that has those specialist skills early, assuming they can also roll up their sleeves elsewhere to some extent, but that can be really valuable. Elsewhere, I will begrudgingly agree with Sean, but not on <laughs> Well, to continue disagreeing with Ash, so here's the problem I find if you take the strategy that Ash mentioned, which is if you hire technical specialists who are good at specific kinds of technology, often what happens is that you try to use this square peg to fix whatever hole you have. So they, they have a certain kind of expertise. They will try to use that to solve whatever problems, even if that technology and that approach is not the right solution to the problem. So you have to be careful. Now, at the same time, there's degrees. If you're starting a, an AI company, you have to have data scientists on the team who understand machine learning. You're not going to hire somebody who doesn't know. You know generalist isn't going to be able to learn and figure out machine learning. And so there's always degrees. Mobile development's another example. Like if you're going to build mobile apps, tip, that's become somewhat of a specialist field just because mobile apps have become so complicated and so niche. But you have to be careful there too that you're not hiring people who really love a specific technology and are going to try to use that as a hammer across any nail you come across. So it's a balancing act. But I will say this, in your defense, Ash, I think engineering is probably the first discipline that you want specialists in out of all the all the areas of your company. So maybe that is the area where we come closest to agreeing on this front. But Ash, uh, sorry, Nick, you're going to be the dividing, the deciding vote. Who is right? Me. You two always make me be the deciding vote in the hardest of the questions that we get here. This is, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think we are out of time for us to get to a final decision. That's right. I have to say that's not that's that. every that's time. Stuff. This is a global conspiracy at this point. First of all, I'm not allowed to answer any sales questions. That's now right. I'm clearly right. I get shut out of the voting. <laughs> hey, you know, follow us on Twitter at the Startup HD. We may see a deciding vote cast via Twitter. There we go. I like it. And also, actually, this is a good call. So Ash has now put out a request for questions, an RFQ, about sales. So if you go to thestartuphelpdesk.com or you go on Twitter to the Startup HD and you submit sales questions, we can commit that we will actually make sure Ash answers all of them. In fact... If we get enough of those sales questions, we'll have a whole episode devoted to nothing but sales yes. answers to questions. That's what the commitment we make to all of you. So get up there, ask those questions so that Ash can finally have his day in the sun and answer How all did those you sales make this worse for me? I don't know. Understand. Like, <laughs> every time it's like judo or something. Again, I'm so glad it's recorded because obviously, you know, then we've got the evidence for the future court cases. <laughs> And there you go. So we've learned two life lessons, well, three life lessons today. One is that the answers to all of your questions are here in the Startup Help Desk. The second is that there are many different points of view on these. And the third is that if there's a possible way to make Ash's life more difficult, Nick and I will find that way. So That's right. those are our three takeaways in addition to the answers we have. We're out of time. As always, Ash and Nick, thank you so much. It has been a lot of fun. Thank you both. Absolute blast. Great chatting. The Startup Help Desk is now closed, but it will open again. We look forward to having you join us next time. Tell your friends, tell everybody you know. We love to answer your questions. Until then, good luck.